My Govanen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel, and welcome back, hopefully for good. I think I am finally going to be able to get back to doing this on a regular basis, so for all of you who are missing me, this should be... <laughs> that, that should be over. Uh, in this video, I'm going to talk about another half-begun story that Tolkien wrote, this time set in the Second Age, it's in the volume The Peoples of Middle-Earth, which is volume 12 of the History of Middle-Earth series. It comes right after The New Shadow, which of course is set in the Fourth Age, which is the only thing he ever wrote in the Fourth Age. But this story takes place in the Second Age, and Christopher Tolkien kind of gives as a background a note that Tolkien wrote, saying that he kind of started this story without a whole lot of specific consideration for the geography of The Lord of the Rings, but that it needed to be situated either as kind of just a sort of unconnected backstory, or it needed to be specifically in the period where the elf friends of Numenor are establishing permanent havens in Middle-earth, and therefore geographically it would need to be near some of those havens for this story to work. And he kind of leaned in that direction. So I'm going to be telling you about the story with the assumption that he went with this second option. And it's about a character who is growing up in Middle-earth before the Numenorians really come back and, you know, found the nations of Gondor and Arnor. And he gets entangled with Numenorians, but we never get very far, unfortunately. So I'm going to talk about some of the story such as it is, it's very brief, some of the interesting elements about it that some people might point to for specific reasons, and how it might have been a really interesting development of some of his Second Age stuff. Before we get to the video, I'd like to talk to you about something new that I've discovered that may help you. One of the things that I'm interested in besides Tolkien is staying healthy and fit, and one of the areas that I've discovered that I've been lacking is my feet. And one thing that I've done recently to start helping my feet is wear barefoot shoes. What's a barefoot shoe, you may ask? Seems like a contradiction in terms. It's a shoe with many different qualities, but some of them include a wider toe box so that your toes can actually spread apart and do their natural thing. A very flexible sole so that your feet can use their natural range of motion. A very thin sole so you can actually feel the ground beneath you and your feet can adapt to what's going on and no drop between the heel and the toe so that you're not constantly at an elevated heel position which has effects on your posture. I've started wearing these recently and I really love them. These are from Zero Shoes. The name Zero is spelled with an X as you can see and they have an affiliate program, so I have a link in the description. If you want to try barefoot shoes for the many benefits that they may have, you can buy a pair and it'll actually help out my channel. These that I have are the Prio. They also have a Prio New version, a Neo Prio Neo, which is a slightly updated version, but these work just fine for me. I love them, and ever since I started wearing them, I can't stand wearing normal shoes anymore because I can feel the regular shoes crushing my toes together and these don't. So I really like these. If you feel like you are interested in wearing barefoot shoes and you can find lots of videos on YouTube explaining the benefits and all that, 
One of the other cool things that Zero does as a company is when you buy their shoes, they will actually give you a bunch of videos and articles that uh, send you links to those that you can use to learn how to get into wearing barefoot shoes and how to transition from a normal shoe to a barefoot shoe. If you already walk around barefoot a lot at home and you know don't wear shoes that often, it may not be that much of a transition, but it might otherwise, so that can be really helpful. So if you're interested in this, you know, take a visit to their website, check them out, see if you're interested in, you know, buying their products. And like I said, if you do, it does help my channel if you use the affiliate link in the description. Thanks a bunch. Now back to the video. So the story begins telling us about a man who lived in Middle Earth in a region which most of the names are given in the local tongue, whatever that is, and we don't know what it is. And so we can't really place it specifically within Middle-earth geography, which of course con coincides with that note that Tolkien wrote. And the one thing that we can kind of grasp, and we grasp fairly quickly, is that these are what Faramir would have termed wild men. And by that we mean they are not the men who came into contact with elves early on in the First Age, and therefore they are not the high men who ended up going to Numenor, Neither are they the men of the Twilight or the Middlemen who are related closely to those high men but didn't go to Numenor or maybe never even made it to Beleriand. These are the ones who never had any contact with elves and who were mostly under the shadow or just had no real knowledge of the Valar or anything. So we get this story and it starts out about a man named Hazad and it tells about his son's how he had one of his great achievements, basically, is that he had a whole bunch of them, 17. And the last one is the one that he loved the most. And we very quickly get into some territory that a lot of people would probably say shows Tolkien's racism in a lot <clears throat> of the same ways that, uh, say, his, his giving the Numenorians all these kind of stat bonuses, so to speak, shows that he was racist compared to, you know, different races in Middle-earth have different inherent qualities. And the reason I say that is his son that he loves the most is the one who looks the least like any of the other wild men. The wild men are tend, tend to be shorter, squatter, darker, whereas this one is blue-eyed, he's tall and relatively thin, but stronger than he seems. And we get some other remarks about the fact that alone among the people in this village, he actually seems to care about older people. Apparently the culture of this people is that once people get old, we just don't care about them anymore. Uh, whereas he has this strange notion, whence it derived, none can say, according to the story, that older people ought to be treated with respect. And so he loves his father more than all of his other brothers combined, who have all, you know, they're all older, and most of them are not even living with his father anymore. And then it tells us that the reason that Hazad loves his son, whose name is Tal Elmar, this, thus the name of the story, the reason he loves this particular son so much is that it reminds him of his mother, and then we get a little backstory his mother was one of a people who was encroaching on the land of, you know, this group of wild men. And apparently this has been happening for some time off and on. 
and we don't know much about who these people are, but they are described also as being, you know, fairer in terms of their skin and hair, taller, you know, that sort of thing. They're very different ethnically than the wild men to whom Hazad belongs as, you know, a an ethnic group. And reading the description, it talks about these people coming in wains, which is a term for wagons, basically. But it makes me think of the Rohirrim before they're the Rohirrim. And I don't know that you could make that fit with the history of that people, the Eotheod, or whatever you want to call them, uh, because they were always in Rovanian to the extent that we know anything about them from the appendices. Still could be them, and it could be that they were in the southern parts of, you know, what would become later Rohan and Gondor, uh, and then they moved north when they encountered too much resistance. But at any rate, there were battles and wars among these different peoples, and Hazad's father was involved in one of these battles, and they had defeated a group of these, you know, invaders is not really the right term, but kind of... Uh, and as a result of this defeat, many slaves were taken, captives, and one of them was a woman who Hazad's father thought was really beautiful and took her as his wife. And that ends up being Hazad's mother. And that's where Tal Elmar, you know, it skips a generation, but Tal Elmar kind of gets his ethnic appearance from her. So we're already getting kind of this idea that, you know, Tal Elmar is different in a whole bunch of different ways, inherently because of his race. And so a lot of people would probably jump on this and say, see, Tolkien is a racist, or something to that effect. But the interesting thing is, this story is also one in which he very explicitly kind of touches on the idea of race, and pushes back against it, because we do get in this backstory a very brief conversation between Hazad's father and Hazad's mother, and the mother is basically bemoaning the fact that she is stuck in an alien people, you know, who she deems unlovely, and, you know, she's separated from her own people, and apparently she had a husband of her own, or at least somebody that she would have married had circumstances allowed, basically ends up telling her, yeah, well, I'm not letting you go, and it, the conversation proceeds to a point where he says, you know, the your, you know, fair skin and, you know, these other attributes that make them like they are don't give you the right to come and take this territory, and she retorts and says, don't they? Well, neither do your, you know, and she gives some of the physical characteristics of him, and then she says, didn't you also take this land from you know, another group of people who are now, you know, basically living in the woods. And the interesting thing is the way she describes the people that these wild men drove out sounds kind of like the Druidine. And if you haven't, if you're not familiar with the Druidine, I've got a video on the Druidine that I can share in the description below so you can kind of learn a little bit more about them. But the thing is, what she is pointing out is like, okay, my race, if my race doesn't give me any particular rights over your race, neither does yours give you any over theirs. I mean, it's all the same. So the 
the idea of race is kind of very specifically brought up and then smashed in this little conversation. So at the same time that Tolkien is implying that there might be some kind of inherent, you know, features and or characteristics passed on because of one's race, it is also true that that does not give a moral advantage to anybody belonging to that race or a different race. So that whole idea is one that needs to be kind of kept in mind when reading Tolkien. It's like, it is possible that both things are true, that certain characteristics inhere in a certain ethnic group, but that does not give moral advantage or disadvantage to that group. Anyway, continuing with the story, what we learn is that Hazad's family, as a, not necessarily a consequence, but it was kind of predicted by his mother, she basically told his father, one will come from my line and you know, that will bring about the downfall of your king and your specific family is going to go downhill because Hazat's father had been kind of wealthy and, you know, renowned among his own people. But by the time Hazat is old, his family has fallen on hard times and is not so well liked among the people. And Hazat, of course, at this point is old and they don't treat old people with any respect anyway, but his entire family is, you know, his sons and everything, they're all treated not as well as they would have been. So she either foretells or curses. It's not exactly clear what exactly is going on there. But the prophecy is clearly about Tal Elmar, who is her grandson, although she, of course, never names him. She ends up dying, you know, before I think even most of Hazad's kids are born. I think she dies young. It's not exactly clear the timeline. They don't specify that. But... At the time of the story, Tal Elmar is 18 years old, and he's with his father this one day, and they go out walking, and they go close enough to see the coast. So we know we're at the western edge of Middle Earth somewhere, and they look out, and Hazad is too old to see well, but Tal Elmar looks out, and he sees what looks like three great birds, kind of, on the sea. And as he's talking to his father about what he's seeing... He says, I see three white ones. Wait, no, I also see a black one. And Hazad suddenly is like, oh, we're in trouble. And Tal Elmar's like, what is the deal? <laughs> uh, so he says, basically, these are, he thinks that these are what they call the Gohileg, which we are going to learn is the Numenorians. And the Gohileg, as he calls them, are something that haven't, they haven't been to this part of Middle-earth in a long time, but there are memories of these ships coming, and every time there's a black ship, they take, well, a black-sailed ship, I should say, they always take a, you know, a bunch of people from them and take them back to wherever they came from, and the stories are that they either eat them or sacrifice them or something. So you get the idea here that this is into Sauron's influence over our Farazon, or maybe at least, not if not at that point yet, at least far enough in that the Numenorians have gotten to the point where they are certainly no longer helpers of Middle-earth, but conquerors and colonizers. So he tells him what, you know, these stories that are remembered, and he says they haven't been here in a long time, not since at least my father's days, and he 
you know, tells them all this and they say, okay, well, we've got to go warn the master of the town, which is kind of a problem because the master of the town is especially disdainful of Hazad and his family. And so they, they do go to the master of the town and he's kind of blowing them off. Like you're seeing things and well, it's like you, you're too old Hazad to even see and tall Elmar, you don't know anything. And tall Elmar of course gets really angry, <laughs> uh, kind of talks back to the master and says, you know, he basically gets sarcastic with him and says, "You know, you shouldn't, you you shouldn't disregard the advice of Hazad, who is much wiser than you are." <laughs> well, the master's about to have a bunch of people, and he claps as if to summon people to kind of take care of Tall Elmar and punish him for his insolence. But then he's like, "Oh wait, no one's around here that's brave enough to take this guy on because we've gotten a, a brief comment about Tall Elmar being basically the toughest guy around." Uh, so he's like, oh shoot, I don't have anybody that can do this. So he has to, you know, just kind of deal with it on his own. And what they end up coming to is the master is going to go with them to the coast to look for himself. And so they do. And the master of course is fat and slow (laughs) because that's, that's the kind of guy a corrupt leader is, I guess. But they do end up going to the coast and he looks out and he sees for himself and he's like, oh, (laughs) okay, this is a problem. But, and this is this is where the story kind of gets interesting, there's all this kind of background stuff we pick up along the way about how the Master is going to want to try to get back at Hazad because he doesn't like their family, but he's not going to try to do it openly because of Tal Elmar being the tough guy that he is. And what he ends up doing is being sly and says, Okay, Tal Elmar... Since I'm the master of the town and this is an emergency situation, I'm telling you to go gather up all the people that, you know, are in the field so that we can get ready to face this. And you, since you're the fastest and you're just like the coolest dude around, you're going to go spy on these guys and then come back and tell us stuff. And tell Tal Elmar realizes, oh man, I've been played because now he's putting me in a situation where I cannot be around to defend my father, and so they could abuse him all they want. And so what he does is he says, okay, but if you hurt my dad, you're going you're gonna to eat it. And he takes the staff of the master, and the master's like, you can't hurt me. And he's like, no, I'm not going to beat you with it. I'm taking it because basically my entire family, and especially me, are treated like nothing in this town so they're not going to believe me when I come and tell them that the master has ordered me to tell them to come, you know, meet in the town. So I'm taking this as a way to basically symbolize that, yes, I have your authority. So he kind of plays him back a little bit. And it's a very, you know, this is cool because it's a little bit of a different style of personal interaction than you get in most of Tolkien's stories. This this kind of thing does happen from time to time, but this is one of the strongest kinds of things that this that happens when Tolkien does this because the the it, it's almost kind of a, a British way of interacting Americans are t- tend to be very just out in the open with their hostility and whatnot we don't do you know kind of backhanded manipulation type things w- with our conversation but that's more of a British thing I think and Tolkien is really really amping it up in this particular scene. And that's not to say that Americans don't do it and British always do it, but it just, it seems to me from 
kind of the British shows that I've seen versus the Americans that I know. It's a more British habit to have conversations in which there's a lot of kind of hidden meaning and underlying, you know, things going on behind it that's not out in the open. But at any rate, Tall Elmar takes the staff and he goes and he does tell the people and then he starts heading towards where it looks like they're going to land and he has to go through this forest. And apparently this forest is an area that the people of his village don't ever go into or through. And it's not made 100% clear why. It's like they think that there's spirits or something in there and frankly I wonder if it's the Druidine. But there's also apparently snakes and it's just not really great territory. It's kind of swampy. It's but that's not the only reason they don't go in there. But anyway, he kind of stops and he's like, okay, this is actually starting to get a little <laughs> scary. But he does go through and he does come to the coast and he sees that the three white sailed ships have landed and there are men who are bringing stuff off the ships and doing stuff, but he doesn't see the black sailed ship. And he's like, okay... And then, prompted by something that he doesn't really understand, he just ends up walking out to meet them, which seems like a really stupid thing to do. Uh, but here is where the story, unfortunately, so well begun, peters out into just bare notes, and we get almost nothing else. And here, Tolkien basically gives us a few different options. One of them is he tries to go up to them, he's, you know, showing him his hands so that they know he's not a threat. But they kind of recognize him as being at least distantly akin in, in ethnic terms. And they talk to him. And in one version that Tolkien considered, he doesn't understand their language, but it seems like it ought to be familiar. In another version, it's like he does understand it because he's heard the language in his dreams, which kind of connects to things like the uh, Notion Club papers and some other really, you know, kind of speculative fiction that Tolkien wrote in, in those lines. And then in the one where they understand each other and can actually converse in a common language, there's some talk about the fact that the black ship has already sailed up further along the coast or whatever, and that's who their captain is. And in the conversation, we get the impression that these are you know, the elf friends, because they're treating him kindly, and they're talking about how, for them, the black sail is a, a sign of honor. And so we get the impression that, while it may be true that some of the other Numenorians have been using the black sails and doing bad things with them, these particular Numenorians aren't. And then it just really gets down into garbled notes, for the most part, and there's, like, suggestions that he ends up going to Rovanian, to you know, all these different places in Middle-earth and, you know, goes with these Numenorians and does all these different things, but there's almost no detail at this point. And it's just, you know, we, we start getting these hints of what could have been this broad sweeping story of a wild man in Numenor or half wild, half middle, you know, whatever, going off with the Numenorians and doing who knows what. I mean, you, you, you can't even really begin to speculate about how this story would proceed because, 
you know, this guy would be going with the Numenorians for what purpose? And to go where? And to do what? Why would he end up in all these different places that are so far from the havens that the elf friends established in Middle-earth? And But, you know, there's just all this suggestive stuff there that Tolkien never followed up on. So it's just, it's yet another story that Tolkien, of course, never finished because Tolkien was really good at starting and not finishing stories. Uh, but it it's one that, is a very different kind of story. It's like the new shadow is a very different kind of story for Tolkien because it's one where it goes into really dark places really fast and it gets conspiratorial and, you know, kind of as he described it, a thriller, but not worth writing because a thriller. This one is not, it doesn't sound like an epic quest. It doesn't sound like, it sounds like it's going to be more just a drama and kind of an adventure story maybe similar to Bilbo's, but without the quest part of that, because there's nothing to hint at Tall Elmar having a particular goal that he's going to be seeking to achieve, but he's going to end up going to a bunch of places, potentially, and doing who knows what along the way. So it would have been a different kind of story from what we typically get from Tolkien. Like, the closest thing I can think of in terms of that kind of story would be something like Smith of Wooten Major, because Smith of Wooten Major has kind of an adventure-ish tale to it, because he goes on adventures, but those are all kind of vague and like just kind of the the middle part of the story that serves as an explanation almost for the beginning and ending. Like, the whole point of the story is what we learn at the beginning and ending, and the middle serves as kind of an you know, a lead up to the the end, not so much the point of the story in itself, if you know what I mean. So there's all this potential here for a story unlike really anything that Tolkien ever put out otherwise. And it would have been really, you know, if he had done it, it would have been like the only Second Age story set in Middle Earth that he ever wrote. And it's a shame that he didn't finish it, but of course you know, it's Tolkien. <laughs> but going back and talking about the kind of the th the interesting themes here, again, this whole idea of race, the key element there, of course, as I already mentioned, was this idea that one can be in a situation where a race or ethnic group has these inherent qualities without those inherent qualities necessarily giving, you know, that race or ethnic group any more rights or moral standing than any other. That seems to be kind of the road, the kind of the tightrope that Tolkien is walking. It's like, yes, Tall Elmar has, you know, what we would consider more enlightened ideas about how to treat older people and things like that, but he also acknowledges through the conversation with Tall Elmar's grandmother and grandfather that none of that means that anybody has the right to drive out another group or, you know, colonize them or anything else. And then the other thing, of course, is the whole idea of Tal Elmar having these dreams and getting language through the dreams. It harkens back to his, not only the Notion Club papers, but also even the older Lost Road, which I've got videos on both of those that I'll put in the description. The idea of getting language in your dreams and learning things in your dreams is a very strong element in several different stories by Tolkien that he never got to fully explore. And there's 
you know, Verlin Flieger actually has a book kind of on this topic called um, Question of Time, I think it is. I forget exactly the title. It's up in my bedroom, and I've forgotten the exact title. But she explores a lot of different things that he read and wrote over time where this idea of basically traveling through time or space through dreams and and doing other really strange things through the dreaming process was a strong theme throughout Tolkien's life. And we never get a full story where he gets to explore it. So it would have been cool if we had finished this story in some ways more so than if he had finished, you know, the Notion Club papers or the Lost Road, because we would have gotten not only that dream element like is in those, but also this Middle Earth set Second Age story, which could have been really interesting. Another really interesting point here is that there's all these references throughout the story to the king of the wild men. And in a note, Christopher basically says it seems pretty clear that the king that's being referred to is Sauron. So the fact that the the grandmother, Tall Elmar's grandmother, whose name was Elmar, that's why he's named Tall Elmar, because the mother, the grandmother's name is Elmar. Her prophecy is about the downfall of the wild men's king. And so it seems like that would pretty clearly put the story right before the Numenorians come and take him captive, or, you know, within his lifetime, maybe even that's when the end comes and the downfall of Numenor happens. So we can get a pretty good idea when this story is set. So it is late Second Age, but nevertheless, it's still set in a period where, you know, the Numenorians are not really the only big things going on in Middle-earth. And it would have been really interesting to see interactions between, you know, the different peoples of Middle-earth at that stage in history and how that could have played out and maybe even seen, you know, Arpharazon's navy coming and taking Sauron to Numenor and who knows what else. So it, there's just so many different elements to this story that could have been really fun to explore, but unfortunately, of course, we'll never get that. But at any rate, that is the story of Tal Elmar, such as it is. Hope you enjoyed looking at that and some of the ideas that were nascent in that you know very brief beginning to a story. It's one that, you know... A, if you can get the Peoples of Middle-Earth, it's a great volume. It's got this, The New Shadow, several other things. Uh, pick up that volume if you can, if you don't already have it, because there's a lot of great stuff there, and all of it's worth a read. So if you did enjoy the video, though, please do give it a thumbs up. You know all the fun details. Share it around. Check out my other social media. Don't forget on Twitter, I do drop occasional, uh, well, not occasional, regular trivia questions related to Tolkien. I'll be starting up my support links again pretty soon. Hopefully by the time this is up, I'll have all that going again. So if you want to jump back into Patreon or Utreon or any of those, you can do that. And until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namariye.